turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 within God's Word. Mark chapter 4. And we'll also be looking at Mark chapter 5 within the Word of the Lord this morning. Again, it is so good to have you with us. It was their honeymoon. And it was a honeymoon that could be characterized. It was filled with anxiety. It was a honeymoon of worry. He was in the bathroom sitting on the edge of the bathtub and saying to himself, uh, we've dated for years. We've been courting for, for, for months. But I've got to confess my secret to her. Now that we're married, it's going to come out. My feet stink. My socks are smelly. At the same time, she's in the bedroom suite. She's sitting on the edge of the bed. She said, now that we're married, uh, he's going to find out. Uh, he's going to know. I, I might as well confess to him, I've got bad breath. I've covered it up with mints, and I've covered it up with Listerine, but... Oh, he's going to find out in the morning, my morning breath, my bad breath. I've got to tell him, will he still love me? So both of these worried individuals finally came together. He came out of the bathroom and sat down on the edge of the bed with her, and he leaned towards her to confess his secret. She leaned towards him at the same time. He said, honey, I've got to tell you something. She said, I've got to confess to you. She breathed in his face. He said, oh, no, you've eaten my socks. <laughs> Worry. Worry. I want to ask you something. Do you have a PhD in worry? Do you worry more than you should? Do you worry about your health, your finances, your relationships? You know, some worry because they're not married yet. Some worried because they are. What do we adults worry about? We worry about our bulges and our bunions and our, our, our baldness. Don't laugh, young people. We don't have to worry about zits. It's at least one thing we don't worry about anymore. Huh? Worry, would you agree with me, is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but you just, it won't get you anywhere. Worry, it won't add one moment to your life. It has no benefit. And what's really at the core of our worry? What's at the root of our worry? What's the mother of worry. Fear. Fear. Fear will fill your face with wrinkles. It'll send you to an early grave. Fear. Fear. Fear defeated Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah. Read the Bible. Fear defeated King Saul, King David, the prophet Elijah. Fear seized Simon Peter in that last hour, and he denied his only Savior, his only Jesus. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times because of fear. Fear is Satan's deadliest weapon. I believe that it's the oldest weapon of the enemy. It'll paralyze your prayer. 
in your praise life. Fear will choke off the blessings of God in your experience. Fear will immobilize and demoralize your God confidence. Fear will be like a black cloud that will infect those round about you. Fear will quarantine you, quarantine you from God's best in your life. Fear is Satan's deadliest weapon. It's no wonder Jesus poses the question not just to his disciples, but to all of us. In Mark 4.40, Mark 4.40, Jesus asks his disciples, Jesus poses it to you and I. Why are you so afraid? I ask you the question this morning. Why are you fearful? You're going to have to shut it off there, brother. Amen. This morning we continue with our series, Seven Steps to Glory. And this morning I'm at our second step. Last week we dealt with Jesus' first year of ministry where he turned water into wine. What does that mean for the believer? For those that have their confidence in God, it's just going to get better. The best is yet to come. This morning we go to the second year of Jesus' ministry. And in Jesus' second year of ministry, he is buffeted. Him and his disciples, they are confronted with fear encounters, fear experiences. One after another, wave after wave, hits them. The question is, who will be champion? Only one can be champion. Only one can be Lord. Who is Lord? This morning, we share God's word with you that we've entitled, No Fear of the Storm. And I'm going to invite you to go to prayer with me right now. And as we're discovering, from, believe it or not, from around the world, as we're getting responses now from places like Nigeria, Peru, and many points around the globe, I want to welcome the audience watching us right now uh, on live stream and so many of our lakeside believers and family members that are shut-ins at home. We welcome you right now as we share no fear of the storm. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask even right now, come Holy Spirit, rend the heavens, come on down and speak to us. Let him or her that has an ear let them say, speak to me, Holy Spirit. Speak to us, O Spirit of God. Let him that hath an ear say what the Spirit is saying to the church today. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. No fear of the storm. Verse 35 of chapter 4. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. What sea were they traversing? 
The Sea of Galilee, would you write that down? The Sea of Galilee, it's seven miles across. It's 160 feet deep. It has a surface that is 600 feet below sea level. On the north end of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, which is 9,000 feet high. On the south end of the Sea of Galilee, you have the lowest spot on the planet. Therefore, you can see a descending a dissension that takes place that would allow for the cool air to meet the hot air. Storms that were sudden and very, very violent were common and are common today on the Sea of Galilee. Do you realize that the waves in the Sea of Galilee can reach 15 and 20 feet high? I never knew that until I researched for this message this morning. After departing, Jesus fell asleep, the Bible says, in the back of the boat, when suddenly, out of nowhere, a sudden storm, a terrible, violent, hurricane-like storm, buffets their ship. I don't believe that this was a familiar, normal, regular, meteorological event, such as the fishermen that were in that boat, Peter, James, and John, were used to. These sailors had never witnessed anything like this. Read the text. They are surprised. They are shocked. They begin to scream, Jesus, don't you care? We're about to drown. Because this was the mother of all storms. They've never experienced anything like this. I submit to you that this was not a weather event, not a natural event, but a supernatural event, a satanic storm. As we discern and decipher the Greek text, we discover that the word that Jesus is about to use, rebuked, is the same Greek word that he uses when he casts demons out of people. Jesus, don't you care? We're about to drown. Jesus wakes up, and he doesn't stand in the middle of the boat with a limp wrist and say, Peace, be still. No, Jesus got up in the midst of that storm. And what do we hear? Peace. Be still. In our vernacular, it would be as though Jesus was saying, shut up. It was not a gradual cessation. It was an immediate calm. The Bible says it. It's right there in the text. There was an immediate, complete calm. That means the wind stopped immediately. The water went flat immediately. And Jesus turns to his disciples. It's his turn to be shocked. It's his turn to be surprised. And he looks at them there in Mark chapter 4, and he says, why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And I believe that he's saying that to some of you here this morning. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? It's God's turn to be shocked. We want to say, well, Jesus, we're only human. <laughs> Jesus, you've hit us with the, the, the mother of all storms here. Come on. This is a satanic storm, Jesus. Uh, we felt like we were about to drown. That's not the issue. Honey, sir, ma'am, young person, you have not been birthed and born in a trouble-free life. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. God has not promised a storm-free life, but he has promised to be in your boat. 
And if you've got Jesus in your boat, uh, the issue of the hour is not the storms. The issue of the hour, who's in your boat? <laughs> if you've got God in your boat, there's nothing to be afraid of. Amen? Your point, your objective, your goal is to get closer to the one in your boat. As long as he's in your boat, as long as the Lord is in your boat, you can move, you can sail in God's confidence. Your anchor will hold because of who's in your boat. Oh, mark it down if you would. Faith in a God who cannot and will not fail, you will always overcome fear. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, without faith. You can write it down there. Faith is God confidence. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Think of it. The Bible is a record of faith and the faithful. By faith, what did Noah do? By faith, without a Black & Decker saw from Home Depot, by faith, Noah built a boat. He built an ark. <laughs> he told his family to pack up their luggage, and he took them on the cruise of cruises because of his faith in God. By faith, hallelujah, Moses marched into Pharaoh's throne room and said, let my people go. And God made a way where there seemed to be no way. By faith, by faith, David, when he confronted Goliath, that mountain of a man, a living, breathing, walking, armored tank of a soldier, what did that little boy, shepherd boy David do as he ran to the roar of his giant, Goliath, as you need to run to the roar of your giant? David didn't run that way. He ran at his giant, and David said, you come to me with sword, spear, and shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord that all this Israel shall know that the battle is the Lord. Lords. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, Esther, Esther entered into the king's throne room without a text, without a Twitter, without an Instagram, not even a phone call. She entered into the king's presence uninvited, unannounced, and she said, let my people live. And because of her God confidence, God brought a mighty miracle. On the night before his decapitation, on the night uh, before his execution, in the shadow of the headman's axe, what do we hear from the apostle Paul? Do we hear him throwing in the towel? Do we hear him going A-W-O-L? Do we hear him being a dropout? No, on the night before his execution, what do we hear from the apostle Paul? I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. No quitting there, amen? By faith, by faith, by faith. By faith, the Bible is a litany of the faith of God's people and the faithful. You need to let this word, his word, become your word to walk in God confidence. Faith, it's not the absence of fear. You're going to struggle with your fears. You're going to grapple with your fears. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what do we hear Jesus the night before the cross crying out, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me? Faith is not the absence of fear, 
But faith is the mastery over fear. Jesus did not just say, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. And the victory was won in the garden before it was won on the cross. Take your fears to Jesus. I said, take your fears to the Lord. Take your fears to God. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the mastery over our, our, our fear. Faith starts out before you know how it's going to turn out. If God said it, uh, then say, I believe it. I receive it. That settles it. I obey it. Because faith without works is dead. Uh, faith, hallelujah, is far more than positive thinking. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear. If you want more faith, if you want to grow in the faith, get closer to the one in your boat. Get closer to Jesus, the lover of your soul. The more you know him, the more you walk with him, the more you talk with him, the more you love him, the more you'll have faith in and through your life. Faith is a love relationship with the lover of your soul who will never leave us or forsake us, our God who cannot and will not fail us. Some of you this morning are experiencing storms. Many are experiencing satanic storms. Again, I remind you, God has not promised us storm-free lives. Would you put that slide up, please? But he has promised us his presence, his peace, his power in the storm. <laughs> That's why you need to reach out to the one <laughs> who rides the wind and the waves with you and I. He is the water walker. He conquers the very thing that would like to overwhelm us. Stop focusing on your storm. Start reaching out to the Lord of Lords who is in your boat. Uh, stop listening to the roar of your storm and start rebuking it with your Prince of Peace. Stop being your storm's punching bag and start commanding it, Peace, be still. Stop complaining how big your storms are and start proclaiming to your storms how big your God is. Amen? The disciples' fear encounters, though, after the storm, we're not over. You know, life is like that. How many of you, you've been hit with wave after wave after wave? And it seems like just, just when you get your head above water, another wave hits you. That's what we find in Mark 4 and Mark 5. The disciples' fear encounters weren't over upon arriving at Gadara on Galilee's eastern shore. For waiting there to confront them was Satan's superman. What do we mean? What do we mean here? Satan's superman. If Satan couldn't kill him with a storm, Satan had a, a beast, a monster of a man, more monster than man, waiting for them there on the shore. But what Lucifer didn't know that's just where Jesus wanted to be. <laughs> That's just where Jesus wanted to bring his disciples to come to class and learn who is Lord. 
This man, this more monster than a man, this zombie-like creature that met them at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where did he live? The Bible says he lived in the graveyard. He lived in the graves. Uh, he lived in the caves of the dead, among the bones, the corpses of the dead. Several times uh, they had tried to chain him, but he would only break his fetters like paper mache. But when Satan's Superman runs at Jesus... It's as though he hit a force field and he collapses at the feet of Jesus. And he bows, the Bible says, as he collapses before him. In Mark 5, 7, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torture me. Jesus then asks a puzzling question. Before Jesus took authority, Jesus asked a question. What was the question that Jesus asked? Anybody know? What is your name? What in the world? Why is Jesus asking this question, what is your name? And since when does Jesus want to get acquainted with demons? Why, why does he want to socialize, converse with demons? What is your name? It's like, you know, we ask people, what, what's your name when we first meet them and are introduced to him? Why would Jesus pose the inquiry, what is your name? Ah, that's why you need a pastor. First page of your Bible, the first page of your Bible, God gave man what over every creature on the planet? Dominion or authority. That authority, that dominion was manifested when God told Adam to do what with every single creature and every animal? Name them. If you know the name, you know the nature. Therefore, according to spiritual law and spiritual principle, if you know the name and the nature, thereby you can have control. Adam blew it. Adam and Eve blew it. That's why you and I have to go to work tomorrow morning. When I get to heaven, I'm going to kick them in the shins. They blew it, but Paul the Apostle said, there is a second Adam who has never sinned, uh, who is righteous, uh, who pleases the heart of the Father. Tell me who the second Adam is. And Jesus has all authority in heaven and in earth. What is your name? And the demonic voice said, we are legion, for we are many. A Roman legion was composed of how many troops? 6,000. Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her. This man is crammed and jammed with 6,000 demons at the minimum. We are legion, for we are many. Jesus just speaks a word. Come out. And the demons are exorcised. They flee from the man and they move into pigs. Uh, uh, they move into swine, a herd of pigs, which symbolize defilement. Pigs are cursed and they drown themselves by jumping over a cliff into the sea, showing the destructiveness of the enemy. And the man sits there, clothed, 
dressed, no longer naked, and in his right mind. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed, and in his right mind. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. The man wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus said, go home and share with family and friends what God has done for you. And the Bible says, so the man started off to visit the ten towns. And what did he do in the ten towns of that region? He began to tell everyone about the great things that Jesus had done for him, and they were awestruck by his story. Now you know why Jesus had to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't coincidence. Now you know why Satan sent the storm, because Jesus had an appointment. Jesus had an appointment with this man, and he was going to take what the devil intended for evil and turn it took the good. Here we have the first Billy Graham, the first evangelist. Jesus, can, only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can take a demon-possessed man and turn him into an evangelist. Hallelujah! That's what God can do. That's what God can do. Two mistakes are often made concerning the demonic. Their power is either overestimated or disbelieved and ignored. You know, some, some Christians wrongly, falsely, immaturely, they see demons everywhere. You sneeze around them, you cough around them. Oh, you got the demon of sneeze. You got the demon of cough. Rebuke that. Don't receive that. It shows very simplistic Christian education, simple childlike maturity. Bible never, ever teaches that. You're overestimating the power of the enemy. But even more dangerous are those that ignore the demonic and relegate it to Halloween, a costume character. I've even read so-called liberal Bible scholars who write off the demon-possessed man of Mark chapter 5 as being psychologically paranoid schizophrenic. I would like to sit down with them and ask them, well, how did the paranoid schizophrenic know Jesus and know him by name? How did he know that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah? And by the way, what went into the pigs? I want to serve notice to you, Lakeside family. Satan is real. A very real Satan is seen throughout the Bible, from cover to cover. And a very real Satan strides across the landscape of America today. Do not be ignorant of his devices. And maybe a very real Satan is working in your home this morning. But here's the good news. Our God reigns. And greater is he that's within you and I than he that's within the world. No one could command and control Satan's Superman except one who has all power and authority, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen, it doesn't matter how addicted, how immoral, how wicked, uh, how bound, how hooked you have become. 
It doesn't matter how deep or how black the pit of sin is that you find yourself in this morning. We declare it again. We declare the good news. Jesus can set you free. Jesus can restore you mentally, socially, relationally, physically, and most of all, spiritually. Only Jesus can save your soul. Only Jesus can turn what was intended for evil and turn it to the good. Let him restore you into a right mind and a right heart. Uh, how can he do this? Only one can be Lord, and Jesus is that one. Upon Jesus and his disciples return to Capernaum, they're confronted by more satanic works. They're confronted by sorrow and sickness. There are some here this morning, you know what I'm talking about. You're experiencing that this morning. Mark chapter 5, verse 22, the leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, came and fell down before Jesus, pleading with him to heal his little daughter. There is nothing more pitiful than when a daddy says, my daughter's dying. Would you heal my girl? I've been there. I know about that. She's at the point of death, he said in desperation. Please come and place your hands on her and make her live. So Jesus did what he always does. He went with him to touch, to heal, to restore. In the crowd, as they were making their way to the home of the dying girl, in the crowd, there was a woman, the scriptures say, that was having a condition, dealing with a suffering that she had been grappling with for 12 years, a hemorrhaging, a bleeding condition for 12 years, and her suffering was total. It was far more than physical. It was also financial. The Bible said that for 12 years, she had spent all of her money on doctors, and she was no better for it. Anybody know what she's talking about? Nothing against doctors. But I know situations where people have exhausted every resource, and they're no better for it. Her condition, her suffering was more than physical. It was more than financial. Her suffering was also relational and psychological. According to the law of Moses, according to the Levitical law that the Jews held to, because of her constant bleeding, she was defiled. She was unclean. Anyone that she touched, anyone that would touch her would also become defiled and unclean. Can you imagine the isolation? Can you imagine the psychological stagnation of being separated from family and friends? Can you imagine her poor self-image? Can you imagine how much she must have felt psychologically? I'm unclean. I'm defiled. 
I'm worthless. I'm no good. Add in addition to that, in that day and time, if you were sick, especially a prolonged sickness, it was viewed as punishment from God. It was viewed because uh, in such a way, just as Job's comforters, their theology was there's sin in your life. Sickness was a sign of God's curse upon you, God's punishment upon you. She wasn't able to go to the church of her day, the Jewish synagogue, because she's defiled, she's unclean. So she's not only separated from family and friends, she's quarantined from the presence of God. You talk about total suffering. You talk about a desperate need. But she hatches a plan. The Bible says in Mark chapter 5, she says within herself, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. There's a powerful truth there. It's all about expectation. Expectation faith. Expectation is the theme here at Lakeside for 2017. I have discovered, I have found as a minister of the gospel that miracles, healing, they first begin in the spirit before they're manifested in the flesh. It starts with believing. It starts with trusting. It starts with a, a know that you know that you know that you know in your knower that somehow, some way, my God is going to make a way where there seems to be no way Jesus is passing by and I'm going to touch him. Hallelujah. Healing first begins in your spirit before it's manifested in the flesh. It first begins as an inward God confidence before it's manifested in an outward, outward miracle. But there's more here. This was targeted faith. This was targeted expectation. What would she touch? How would she touch? This is not a haphazard, Jesus come walking by and I'm going to tackle him. Scripture is specific, there's specificity and detail here. She said, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, that's the King James translation, the new uh, international version, the edge of his cloak, the edge of his garment. What is she saying here? Again, Levitical law. Every Israelite man had to wear an outer garment, a robe, a four-cornered robe. On each of the four corners would hang one tassel. God was commanding the Israelite men to wear one tassel on each corner of their four-cornered robe. Why? Well, they didn't have a smartphone to leave memos. I don't know about you, I'm sending myself emails all the time so I don't forget things. Yeah. Your needs come to my mind in prayer and I, I, I type it out. I email myself. You know, I need to give this one a call. I need to touch base with this one. I need to give this assignment to this pastor. I haven't seen this a person around. By the way, some of you have written down your names lately and I see you here this morning. Praise the Lord. I didn't even have to call you. Hallelujah. In the old days, when we didn't have smartphones, we used to take a string and tie it on our finger so we don't forget. 
Young people, I've watched them. They don't even bother with the smartphone, even though they have it. I've watched them writing ink on their arms and hands. Sure. So that the Israelite men, husbands and fathers, would not forget the word of the Lord. The tassels were to remind them of God's word, his commands, and his irrevocable promises. Promises of deliverance. Promises of victory. Promises of salvation. Promises of prosperity. Promises of health and wholeness and healing. Interwoven into the tassels, Eugene has just reminded us, was blue thread. The blue thread uh, was to remind them of the The ruach is the Hebrew word. The wind or the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. In the tassel, you have represented both the word and the spirit. That's why your pastor, that's why your pastor, it's been birthed in his heart over a year ago to birth a word and spirit conference that begins next week, Sunday morning. Four anointed days, five anointed speakers. Don't miss it. Be there. Why word and spirit? I have found that if a church is only focused on the word, void of the Holy Spirit, that church becomes nothing but intellectualism, a barren orthodoxy, a dead church. If that church is focused only on the things of the Spirit and doesn't teach the Word, is not grounded in the Word, then you're going to have fleshly kicks, emotional excess, false doctrine. You're going to have fanaticism. But where there's a beautiful balance in a church between word and spirit, there is power. Hallelujah. And that's where I want to go. That's where I've wanted to lead Lakeside. The Jewish men ceased wearing the four-cornered cloak as fashions changed throughout time. And the four-cornered robe turned and evolved into the prayer shawl. The prayer shawl still has the tassels on it today. The prayer shawl is white in color with tassels interwoven with blue representing the ruach, the spirit of God and the word of God. And the men when they go to pray, they put the shawl, the prayer shawl over their head as a symbol and a sign of entering into and being covered by the presence of God. <laughs> and that's what I want. <laughs> I want to touch him with prayer and praise. And that's why your pastor is calling for tomorrow night. I'm sounding the call to the family of God here at Lakeside about tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. You see, I've discovered something. We can have all the policies and all the programming and all the productions and all the personalities here at Lakeside and it won't accomplish anything unless we have the person, the presence, and the power of God in our church. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, saith the Lord. We cannot control the Holy Spirit, but we can set our sails. We can pray. 
and we can believe and we can expect that God the Holy Spirit uh, next week in our Word and Spirit conference, He is going to rem- He's going to move. He's going to renew. He's going to refresh. He's going to revive because the cry in my heart is this, revive us again. <laughs> and revive us again. Revive us again. Tomorrow night, I'm going to have some of you speaking and declaring and professing the promises of God. And then we're going to go to prayer. One hour. I'm just asking for one hour of prayer. One hour of prayer. Let's position ourselves. Let's set our sails as a church for the wind of the Holy Spirit to come. Because I find that the time of prayer is a time of power. And the place of prayer is a place of power. And if a people of prayer are a people of power. If my people pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Glory to God. Can somebody give him praise and glory this morning? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Satanic storms, satanic storms. Jesus was encountering satanic storms. Storms on the Sea of Galilee. Satan's Superman. And now disease and sickness. Only the devil is the author of sickness, pain. And suffering. Mark emphasizes that Jesus had to squeeze through the crowds. He's rubbing shoulders with all of those round about him. Suddenly, Jesus turns around abruptly and says, Who touched me? Who touched me? The disciples looked at him as though he had lost his mind. Master, what do you mean, who touched you? Everyone's rubbing shoulders with you. And then Jesus made this pointed statement in Luke. But Jesus told him, no. It was someone who deliberately touched me. Oh, you need a circle. Those three words. Deliberately touched me. There is a touch, and then there's a faith touch. There's a touch, and then there's a deliberate touch. There's a touch, and then there's an expectation touch in every service, uh, in every praise gathering, in every prayer gathering. Jesus is passing by. Jesus is in that place. And there are those who touch him, and then there are those who really touch him. They touch him with expectation. They touch him with prayer and praise. They touch him in tongues and in the Holy Spirit. They reach out in faith and say, my God, somehow, some way, will make a way where there seems to be no way. She touched him and instantly she was made whole. As she touched him with a faith touch. Mark 5, 33, then the woman knowing what had happened to her came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. There's that fear factor again. Her need was far more than physical. It was emotional. Jesus touched her with this. Verse 34, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Peace, peace. 
This morning we're going to conclude this service with a healing service. I'm sick and tired of our prayer list being so long with sicknesses, especially cancer. And this morning, we're going to rebuke cancer, we're going to rebuke the storm, and we're going to declare that Jesus is Lord, and cancer is not. Here at Lakeside, we believe, we proclaim, and we practice divine healing in the name of Jesus. Let there be no confusion in this. We believe our Lord is still in the healing business for five reasons, I want to give you quick five reasons. I'll put them on the screen. Number one, we believe in miracles because Jesus performed the miraculous in the past and he's our unchanging Lord. The Old Testament says, I am the Lord thy God and I change not. The New Testament says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. People change, God doesn't. He healed yesterday, he still heals today. Number two, we believe in divine healing because healing is God's will for our lives. Never do you read in the Bible that it's God's will for you and I to be sick. Never will you find that. Never is that ever in holy writ. The Bible says that Satan is the author of all sickness and suffering. The Bible says, though, in 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Number three, Jesus has paid the price in full. He has paid the price for our healing at the cross. Uh, he was wounded for our transgressions. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace uh, was laid upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Let there be no confusion. The enemy has no right to lay upon you that which was already laid upon Jesus at the cross of Calvary. Number number. For the same Holy Spirit who anointed Jesus with healing power is still in his church today. Peter said in his sermon in Acts 10 how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. How he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. Every healing work Jesus did was through the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Lastly, healing is one of God's marvelous promises. The Bible says all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You mean to tell me all the promises but not healing? All the promises, but not deliverance. All the promises, but not restoration. No, a thousand times, no. That's why James the Apostle in James 5 can say, Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Is this just good preaching? Is this just uh, scripture? Or is this something we're witnessing here at Lakeside Assembly of God? I received, I received, I received a letter hand-delivered to me last week Sunday, and I read it to you right now. Several weeks before Christmas of 2016, I received a phone call from my doctor. She told me I was diagnosed with breast cancer. With shock, I could barely stand. I was shaking. Overwhelmed in panic and desperation, 
I called out to Jesus through much support of my husband, my church, and friends. An immersion of prayer brought me strength and peace. What I understand is that cancer and disease are demonic. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It has no right in our bodies. God has given us the power and the authority to overcome the demonic and evil in this world. We must take a stand against the enemy. Greater is he that is in me and in us than the one in the world. Satan, you cannot have us in Jesus' name. During my prayer, my surgeon's office called with test results. I chose not to take the call and continue to pray. The following morning, I received the test results. Low risk, chemo of no benefit. Thank you, Jesus. Nidra Hunt. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Where are you at, Nidra? Amen. Right down here. There's only one real healer. There's only one great physician. Jesus our only Lord. Lastly, Jesus has proven his lordship over disaster, demons, and disease. But now the devil hits him with one last round, one last punch-out blow. Does Jesus have authority over the last enemy, the final enemy, as the Bible calls it? Mark 5, 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Listen, I've seen the enemy work like this over and over again. Some of my worst attacks are after I preach and I walk out in that foyer. Some of the worst attacks come when you've had God's presence come down upon you at this altar and then Monday morning you're hit as the enemy tries to rob you of the victory. I can imagine that when Jairus was taking Jesus to his house and when Jairus saw the woman with the issue of blood healed and made whole, I can imagine this dad <laughs> jumping up and down. I heard that he was a healer, but now I've seen that he's a healer but just winking at him around the corner. Your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. Some of you have heard old Slewfoot whisper that in your ear. It's dead. It's hopeless. Give it up. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, now get a hold of that. There's power in the tongue. There's power in the confessed word, whether it's positive or negative. Notice that as soon as Jesus heard the word, and the word was negative, it was demonic, it was devilish. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid. There's the fear factor again. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Only believe. How do I know that Jairus believed? He didn't say goodbye, Jesus. It's over, Jesus. It's useless, Jesus. Don't bother coming to my house. No, he went hand in hand with Jesus to the house. 
He chose to believe. It might have been mustard seed faith. It might have been teeny tiny faith. But as long as your teeny tiny faith is in a God who continues to move mountains, that mountain shall be moved. And he went hand in hand with Jesus to the house. And who was already at the house? The professional paid mourners were already there. I want to remind you there were no embalming fluids or practices in that day. The day you died, that was the day of your funeral. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, no, she's just sleeping. I'm here to wake her up. And they laughed him. They laughed him to the face. They ridiculed and mocked Jesus to his very face. So Jesus, and this is what some of you need to do. You need to do it in love. Now hear me. You need to do this in love. Let me say it again so there's no confusion. You need to do this in love. You need to perform a doubtectomy. You need to perform a doubtectomy in your home, at your place of work, in, in your circle of relationships. That's why we're here this morning. Every Sunday service filled with Holy Ghost, born again, Bible-believing, blood-washed, uh, born-again, soldier of the cross, demon-fighting Christians. Every church service is a doubt-ectomy. We come together as believers. We rub off on one another. We encourage one another. And those that are negative, those that speak uh, of death and discouragement, disappointment, disillusionment, those that speak of despair, you need to separate yourself from them and focus in on our God who's never lost a battle. Jesus performed a doubtectomy and he said, get out of here. You negative speakers, you doubt speakers, you death-dealing speakers, I want you out of the house. I just want the parents that believe. And Peter, James, and John, I want you in here, but not the rest of the disciples. Interesting. He filled the room with faith because even God with all of his power is short-circuited in an attitude of unbelief. And Jesus comes to the little girl's bed and he touches her. And in Aramaic, he says, Talitha kumai, little lamb, arise. And she rises up, uh, strong, healthy. She's alive. It's a miracle. He's not only Lord over disaster. He's not only Lord over demons. He's not only Lord over disease. He's Lord over death. Hallelujah. Oh, give him praise and glory this morning. How is it so? Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. <laughs> I know who's in my boat. <laughs> because we know who holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Stand with me this morning. What is the enemy? What has the enemy pronounced dead in your life? Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your future. What has the enemy confessed as dead over your life, 
over your situation. Invite Jesus in. Invite Jesus into your death-dealing situation. Invite him to speak to Letha Kuma. Let Jesus, your living Lord, touch you this morning. And what the enemy calls dead, only Jesus can make alive. Father, in the name of Jesus this morning, I declare, I declare, I declare this altar as this ground, O oh God, as holy ground, as healing ground, as a miracle ground. Lord, I just declare right now, Lord Jesus, that we are standing on holy ground. And Lord, this morning, as we touch you in praise, as we touch you in prayer, I declare, Lord, uh, that holy ground will become healing ground in the name of Jesus. How many are here this morning? With an upraised hand, you would say, Pastor, Pastor, I need deliverance. I need healing. I need a miracle in my body. I need a miracle in my situation. I need God to turn around what was intended for evil and turn it to the good. Would you lift up your hand right now? If you don't believe that God is able to do miracles, then leave your hand down. But if you have a need this morning that only God can bring about, that only God can heal, that only God can restore. Lift it up as a sign of your faith this morning. And join us right now down at this altar as Cindy sings, we are standing on holy ground. Would you come as the elders come?